Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So I was taking a training course in a counseling model um, about a year ago. You, you know, we take these courses from time to time to just keep up to date. And uh, the author of the course said, if you don't explore with a person that you're counseling, if you don't explore their family life, how they grew up, and then if you don't explore what their family life is right now, you haven't done them a favor as a counselor or as a therapist because nothing so profoundly impacts a person as the family that they grew up in and the family that they're in right now. And that's why it is so important for us to address the issue of family in church. This is, uh, this is God's house, and God designed marriage and family, so if we ever should talk about family and marriage anywhere, we should talk about it in God's house. We should have conversations about how to, how to have a great marriage, how to have a great family here, because this was God's invention. And even though family life can be challenging, we have to remember that God designed family life to fix a problem, not to create one. When God designed marriage, he said, we have this brief moment of self-talk uh, in Genesis where God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll create a helper who is just right for him. So there is this idea that we need each other and family deeply. And it is something that God has given us um, to make our life more functional. But we also know that what God intends for good, Satan often tries to corrupt. And so Satan has tried to take something that God intended to be adding to the functionality of our life. And sometimes family life creates dysfunction and it can be really difficult. And even the best of family situations can tend to be challenging. I don't know if you could identify with what I'm getting ready to say. I have two of the sweetest daughters I mean, they're some of the greatest people in the whole world. My, my two daughters, I mean, I'm a little prejudiced, but I think they're better than your kids, you know? Um, and yeah, I will tell you that parenting is the hardest job I have ever, 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 ever done. I mean, I've done some challenging things in my life. Parenting is so far beyond that. And you know why? Because I think, and, and if you're in this room and you're a parent, you know what I mean when I say the stakes are just so incredibly high. You understand, like, what I do as a parent is going to impact this, per, the, this little bundle of joy. When you, bring, when you hold that baby for the first time, you know, hopefully you know, what you do as a parent is going to impact this person long after you're gone. And so it's, the stakes are really high. And by the way, can we just agree with each other that the culture that we're in has raised the stakes. It is even more important that parents fulfill the role that God has called them to fulfill because the culture will not do it for you. There is not a thing in the culture that we live in that is oriented toward raising kids and families the way that God has called us to do it. So we're gonna have to work extra hard. By the way, being a spouse, that's difficult too. And I'll tell you why. Even, you know, here's the deal. Even if you married somebody that is just, you know, the greatest person you ever met, they're still imperfect. You, you had to pick from an imperfect, like when you, decided who to marry. You had an imperfect pool of people to pick from, and so did they. <laughs> Just keeping it real. So 
put two imperfect people together in the same house and you're gonna have challenges. Then you have kids, you put four or five imperfect people together in the same house and you're gonna have challenges. Here's the good news. The good news is that God wants to give us instructions for how to take what Satan has tried to mess up and to reorient it back to his original plan. See, the thing is, God knows how we're designed to function and he knows how family's designed to function. So this is what faith is all about. In our culture, we've treated faith as though it's like just a, a, a euphemism for religion. I'm a person of faith. And what most people mean when they say that is that I'm a religious person. Faith is about believing that God has the right to write the instruction manual. God has the right to write the instruction manual for my life and for my family, and I believe that if I follow him, I will have the right outcome. That's what faith is all about. And so God is giving us directions for how to have family life. And if we'll follow them, we will actually experience God's best in our life and have victory over what Satan is trying to do. We will actually win that battle as we were just singing about a moment ago. So in this series, talking about marriage and family life, we have used a metaphor that is in scripture for how we need to live our life so that we have the best outcome. And that metaphor is sowing and reaping or planting and harvesting, however you want to call it, because there are some laws built into the universe relate, related to planting um, and harvesting that actually work out perfectly as a metaphor for what we do in our life and the outcomes that we're going to get later. We've said throughout this series that if you think of your thoughts, your actions, your habits, all of the things that you customarily do as seeds that you're planting, that's what the scripture says is someday there will be a harvest for those seeds that we plant. So I, you know, last week I went over the laws of sowing and reaping. I don't wanna spend a lot of time there because we, we gave it its due attention last week, but I do wanna just fly by. In case you weren't here with us last week, I wanna make sure that you're up to speed. The Bible reminds us that the laws of sowing and reaping work this way. You will first of all harvest what you plant. So what you harvest someday is consistent and compatible and congruent with what you are planting right now. That's important because human nature is to assume that I can plant something today but harvest something else tomorrow. You know, farmers don't think that. They don't think, well, I'm gonna plant tomato seeds and grow watermelons. They know if you plant a tomato seed, you're gonna grow tomatoes. But in life, we often think that we can plant one thing and harvest another. I've talked to a lot of people that are planting seeds of financial dysfunction, and they're making lots and lots of bad financial decisions. But when they talk about their future, they tell me, I'm pretty sure it'll all work out. Or there are people who sow seeds of, of anger and hostility with their kids because they think I'm the parent so I can talk to my kid this way. I mean, I go to the grocery store sometimes, I grieve for how I see parents talking to their kids because I think, do you realize they will begin to act the way you are acting toward them? And, and I, I've had parents tell me, well, I can talk to them that way because I'm the parent. You do realize that regardless of the role, they will learn to do what you do. So they will eventually talk to others the way that you talk to them. But there's this human nature thing that says, I can plant this today and I'm gonna harvest a little something different later on. But the Bible says it doesn't work that way. The Bible says you will harvest what you plant. Whatever it is that you're planting in your marriage, whatever it is that you're planting with your kids, whatever it is that you're planting at work, you're gonna get a harvest of that same kind of thing. You're gonna get back what you put in. The Bible says this, don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. The second law of sowing and reaping is that you will always harvest after you plant. And last week I said, I am a ready, fire, aim kind of person. I like to fly by the seat of my pants. I really do because I always figure you can always adjust. Just give it a shot, 
You can always adjust later, but this doesn't work that way. When it comes to what you do in your family and the future that it is leading you to, you cannot fly by the seat of your pants because you are not going to have the harvest happen at the same time as the sowing. There are two seasons and they don't overlap. I sow today, I harvest tomorrow. So I can't just go off of my gut and see, does it feel right today? And if it feels right today, then I'm gonna be good in the future because how many of us have learned there are things that in the sowing season feel right that definitely don't feel right in the harvesting season. As a matter of fact, the scripture emphasizes there are certain things that are very pleasurable to sow, but unpleasurable to harvest. And then there are other things the Bible says that we may sow with tears. It may be difficult in the sowing season, but we're going to reap a harvest of joy. I was thinking about those who've talked to me about the experience of going to the Marine Corps boot camp. That's not exactly something that you think of as a fun experience. That's going to be a lot of fun. Actually, it's going to be very difficult. But the harvest for that season of difficulty is major. God is saying, which do you wanna focus on? Do you wanna focus on the harvesting season or the sowing season? Because some of us, what we want is we want to feel good now. But in order to do that, we have to ignore what's gonna happen later. The Bible says that Moses chose to suffer the affliction with, his, with the people of God rather than to enjoy pleasures of sin for a season. There's a sowing season and a, and a harvesting season. Which season is most important to you? And I'm gonna tell you why I think God wants us to look at the harvesting season as the most important. Because you might say, Jonathan, look, if I'm gonna have a rough time, either in the sowing or the reaping season, then I might as well just have a good time now. If I'm gonna have a, if it's gonna be difficult at one point or another, what, what's the problem with just going ahead and enjoying myself now and paying for it later? Here's the reason why that doesn't work. The third law is that you will harvest more than you plant. You will get more than you bargained for in the harvesting season. So you're either going to enjoy a little pleasure now and a lot of payback for that later, or you may sow a little bit of seeds of tears today, but reap a massive harvest of blessing later. The question is, which are you going to do? God is saying, focus on the harvest because there's gonna be more. When you get to the harvest, there's gonna be more. Now, why is this important in family life? We talked about this last week. It's so important in family life because in a family, you will often plant as an individual, but you will harvest as a group. There are things that I have planted in my marriage, in my family, that Wendy and the girls had no part of. They didn't plant any of that. But you know what? They're gonna have to harvest it with me because we're a family. So what I, what I plant is bigger than just me. I am affecting my family with what I choose to sow. Last week I mentioned my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother had a lot of kids and she had come to faith in Jesus Christ and she wanted to keep her kids in church. She wanted to be in church. Um, her husband was not a believer until almost the end of his life. He was not a believer and he would make fun of her for getting up on Sunday mornings and dressing the kids and taking them to church. And in front of the kids, he would deride her and make fun of her. And that, that is sowing in tears, truthfully. That is very difficult. Some of you in this room, you've lived that. You know what that's like. And yet... My grandfather was pastor of the same church for 50 years. Her son, pastor of the same church for 50 years. My dad's been here since 1985. He was pastoring before that. I've been here for 12 years. I've been in full-time ministry for 15 years. You go through the Hoover family tree, there are pastors on every branch, and that is because of seeds that my great-grandmother sowed. The thing about it is, she wasn't a, a pastor. You know what she was? She was a person who was willing to plant seeds and say, you know what, God will know how to pay off in the harvesting season. 
And some of us need to say, you know what? I need to reorient my thinking so that I can sow now, even if it's difficult for me, especially if I'm dealing with a harvest from the past and that harvest is bad, I'm really having to, I'm really having to put my head in the game and sow seeds that may be difficult to sow today, but I gotta trust that God is managing the harvest. And that harvest in my family could have echoes for generations and generations and generations. That's what happened in the Hoover family. It could happen for you as well. Now, why is it difficult to sow the right seeds? I mean, if it wasn't difficult, there'd be no point in having this sermon series. Why, why is it difficult to plant the right seeds in your relationship? Well, the Bible says it's because there's a war inside of us that makes planting the right seed difficult. Every person who's a believer has a war going on inside of them. See, there's a, a temporary part of me and there's a permanent part of me. The temporary part of me is the one that you see in front of you. This is the, Paul calls this my tent. It is the body that I live in, right? And uh, it is temporary. The older I get, the more temporary I realize that it is. At 41, things are starting to wear out and some of my hair has gone home to be with the Lord already ahead of me, right? Um, That's a temporary part of me. And one of the challenges with this body that I live in, the Bible says that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden, that every person that that was born after that was born with a sin nature. So this body that I live in is pre-programmed to face away from God. The direction of my flesh is what the term is used in the scripture. The direction of my flesh is away from God. But there's also an eternal part of me, my spirit, which involves my will. And at at a point, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And with my will, I directed myself toward God and said, I believe that God is right. And if I don't match up to God, I'm wrong. And if other people don't match up to God, they're wrong. God is completely right. That's true north. I'm pointing my spirit toward God. The only problem is that up to that point, Up to the point where you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your body and your spirit are pointed in the same direction. There's no incongruence, there's no problem. But once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, now your spirit is pointed toward God, but the body that you live in is still pointed away from God. So you're gonna fight a daily battle to reorient your spirit in the right direction because the flesh is gonna wanna pull it back, almost like a car that's out of alignment wants to pull you off the road. There's gonna be that drawing of the flesh to pull you away from God. You're going to have to consistently keep pulling it back onto the right path. And the thing is, some people think that because they're dealing with that battle, they must not be a good Christian. Last week we said, the fact that you're dealing with a battle is a sign that you are a Christian and that you are fighting daily to try to follow Jesus Christ. And it will be a battle. Someday we'll, we'll be with God in heaven. And you know what the great thing is? I will leave my sin nature when I leave this planet. And I will get to feel what it's like to actually have congruence and congruence on the right side. That's what's in my future. Now, the Bible says those who live to satisfy their own sinful nature, that's what we're talking about, the body that points away from God, they're going to harvest decay and death from that nature. But those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life from the spirit. So ultimately, I am either sowing seeds that point away from God or I'm sowing seeds that point toward God. And that is how I can determine what my future is going to be like. Now, there is a a taxonomy, a list of things that I shouldn't be planning and a list of things that I should be planning. That's in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter four, it says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Um, And by the way, there's a message coming from my dad um, about that list. And then it says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And we talked about forgiveness last week. So this is a great little checklist for the seeds that we should be planting 
and the seeds that we should not be planting. Now, let me tell you why that's, that works for me if I'm looking back. If I'm, you know, if I had, if I'm trying to look over my day and say, how did I do with planting these seeds and not planting the wrong seeds? The list is really helpful. Or if I'm trying to understand how I got down a bad road, maybe I got upset with Wendy and we got in a a little tiff and I'm trying to figure out, well, how did that happen? Oh, I planted some seeds of anger. I can definitely see how that, you know, how that affected that. Lists work for me that way, but you know what they don't work for me really well is in the moment. I don't know if you're like me, but if it's a long taxonomy, I don't do really well with moment by moment decisions based off of lists. It's just too much for me to, to, to keep in, in mind. So what I love in life is a rule of thumb. Give me a rule of thumb and I will be happy because I need to be able to have a principle that I can, I can use to filter. I wanna be able to filter the seeds that I plant based off of some overarching guiding principle. And that's what this message is based on because God did give this to us. The filter is very helpful. I I read a story online about a farm in Michigan. I can't remember what what they're growing, some sort of produce. Um, And they have two ponds that they draw water out of to irrigate. So there's pumps that bring that water up out of the ponds and then spray it all over their plants. But what they did not realize is that there was weed seed uh, germinating, growing in those ponds. So they were literally pumping weed seed out with, with water onto their plants. And then they would spend thousands of dollars to have people come in and, and weed by hand to get all those weeds uh, out of their plants. So that once they realized the problem, they bought a filter from this company that makes a special kind of filter and it filters the weed seed out and they're saving now every year thousands and thousands of dollars because they're not having to go in and get the weeds out of their plants that they were distributing along with the water. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. God wants to give us a a, a principle that we can use to filter the seed that we plant so that we don't create unnecessary work for ourselves. And that's what I'm going to share with you here in a second. But before I get there, I want to say that sometimes when I talk about filtering ourselves, when I'm counseling a couple or or doing some sort of family counseling, um, I get some pushback. Um, And usually it goes something like this. Jonathan, I get why I should need to filter myself at work. I should have to filter myself with people that don't know me very well. But Jonathan, this is my family. If I should ever be able to be unfiltered, I should be able to be unfiltered at home. Like I should be able to put all the guards down and just be who I am and be unfiltered at home. I can't, I, I don't think you're, you're leading us in the right direction to suggest that I should need to filter with my spouse and with my kids. Well, it's an interesting thought. It doesn't tend to work in other arenas of our life. I, I brought an a oil filter up here with me when I first... Um, graduated high school, I decided I wanted to be a mechanic and I did work on cars for quite a while. I paid my dues, changed a lot of oil on cars. And, and I never remember a customer coming up to me and saying, I don't want an oil filter on my car. <laughs> like, it's not even that I don't want you to change it. I don't want one. I don't want an oil filter on my car. Now, if I was renting a car, it would need an oil filter. I could see that. But my car, like, I don't want to filter that stuff. Like, I want the real stuff in my car. It's my car, so I don't need a filter, Right? That'd be certifiably insane. As a matter of fact, we are less picky about the features of a rental car and, the safe, and, and whether or not the rental car is in great working order because you know why? We're gonna turn that right back in. We care about our car because we're planning on driving it for a long time. We want it to last a long time. We want it to be in good condition. Some of you are like my dad. He changes his oil more than the, than the recommendations from the manufacturers. Why? Because he wants to drive that car for a long time. Wants it to be in good shape. Actually, we should filter more, not less in situations where we want, we want the best and we want it to last a long time. I mean, it'd, it'd be kind of like saying, well, we filter our coffee when we have guests, you know. 
but not when it's just us. I mean, I want, I want us to have the real coffee, like re the real stuff, not the filtered stuff. That's fake. I mean, we want the real coffee. Some of you are like, yeah, that's what my spouse says. I don't know. Uh, see, the thing is, the reason you filter is to get the gunk out so that the good stuff has a chance to do its job. See, the thing about me is I am never gonna be the dad or the husband that I need to be until I realize there's gunk in here. And if, if God is gonna do the job that he needs to do through me in my wife and my daughter's lives, I need to filter the gunk out and they need to get the best of me and not the worst of me. I need to filter with them more than I need to filter with anybody. Not being fake, but just being careful about what comes out of me as it relates to my family. So here's the rule of thumb that Jesus gave us this is in Matthew. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And immediately, a lot of people in the room who are disappointed. Oh, I thought you were gonna show me something new. I've heard this my whole life. I'm, you know, I was in kindergarten. They were teaching us, do, do to others what you would have them do to you. Like, this is not news to me. Like, I've known the golden rule forever. Yeah, knowing the golden rule is one thing. Implementing it is quite another. Actually having it become, like, take root in our lives and become something that we use as a filter is another thing entirely. Do we actually do this? I, you know, one of the pastors that I look up to and respect had a guy come up to him after a sermon one day and said, Pastor, when are, we gonna, when are we gonna explore the deep things of God? I mean, when are we gonna get to the mysteries of God? And the pastor said, look, I tell you what, when you have love your neighbor as yourself conquered, come back and talk to me and we'll figure out how deep we need to go. Some of the most simple things that God has taught us to do are sometimes some of the most difficult things to do. And we have a lot of work sometimes to do in those areas. But by the way, isn't it interesting that we get this from Jesus? When I was in a, I was in a freshman philosophy class, um, when I first went to college and they gave us a sheet of quotes and we were supposed to attribute those quotes to where they came from. And in my class, the average answer for the golden rules that we got it from Ben Franklin. We didn't get it from Ben Franklin. We got it from Jesus. Jesus gave us the golden rule. And here's what's cool about this. In basically every world religion, there is some version of the golden rule somewhere in their sacred text. But in almost every other religion, the golden rule is written in the negative. Don't do to someone else what you wouldn't want them to do to you. This is different. Jesus puts it on the positive. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And as a matter of fact, the English translators, they have a rough time with this. Because if you just bring over the words just directly over, it, it comes across as something like, do all everything to others what you wish they would do to you. It's like, do all the things. All the things you wish somebody would do to you, get out there and do those things to them. I mean, that's a pretty tall order, especially in family. But that is what God has given us. And so I wanna, I wanna just quickly, in the rest of the time that we're gonna spend together, I wanna give you a couple of questions you can ask yourself as sort of a, a mental inventory that we can take in the moment and ask myself, am I at a place where I'm really doing to others and my family what I would want them to do um, to me? But before we get there, I need to tell you there's sort of like a, a prerequisite for this. Remember when you're, you, know, you were in high school or in college and they would tell you, you can't take this class until you take this class first. There's a prerequisite for the golden rule. And that is that you have to actually know the people for whom you're going to do this. Like, 
if you're going to do to your wife what you would want her to do to you, you actually have to know your wife. If you want to do to your kids what you would want them to do to you, you actually have to know your kids. Because here's what Bible scholars tell us. Bible scholars tell us that this verse does not mean that if I have something that I want, let's say there's something specific I want. I want a new laptop then the verse is not calling me to go get a new laptop for my kid for whom that might not mean anything. They might not want that at all. Actually, the verse is saying, if I were them, what would I want someone to do to me? I actually, part of the golden rules, I have to be able to put myself in the other person's shoes. I actually have to be able to, to think about what is it like to be them. And honestly, empathy is on the decline in the American family because we've been given the impression that the only thing that matters is me. But actually, empathy is maybe one of the most powerful things that can actually elevate our family life. So I need to be able to get out of Jonathan's shoes for a minute and think about what is it like to be almost 18 and getting ready to move away from home and go to college? What's that like? What's it like to be facing that whole new world of I'm differentiating and becoming my own adult and having to think about what my life is going to be like in the future and how am I going to you know, make this new career and how am I going to get through school and all those sorts of things? Or what's it like to be 13 and have just lived through a global pandemic a couple years ago? I didn't live through that at that age. Plus, my 13-year-old is a vintage girl. She loves all things vintage. I am not a person for whom the word antique is a verb. <laughs> but what is it like to be someone who the word antique is a verb for? Or... What is it like to be married to a joker like me for almost 20 years? What is it like to be in, in Wendy's shoes and experience what she's experiencing in life right now? If I don't know what it's like to be them, I can't do the golden rule. And some of us, we really actually would be surprised that the golden rule isn't working for us because we're pretty sure it is working for us. But the problem is we're doing for them what we want. We're not actually thinking about what would I want if I was them? That's an important middle step. Okay, so let's say that we are. Let's say that we are empathizing. We know what it's like to be them-ish. We're trying our best. We're learning every day a little bit more about what it's like to be them. How do I implement the golden rule? First question I need to ask myself is, if I was in their shoes, how would I feel about what I'm doing right now? The what, the, the thing that I'm doing, the way that I'm, I'm you know, the, the, the thing that I'm, um, they have to experience with me right now, how would I feel about that? And that is such a powerful question. I remember um, I was doing couples counseling. This has been some years ago. And in the office setup that I had at the time, I had swivel chairs uh, for the couple to sit in. And I would sit across from them. But they wouldn't look at me. I'd have them, them swiveled and looking at each other. Because I figured they don't need to stare at my ugly mug the whole time. And, by the, and, and anyhow, they didn't come in, in there to work on their relationship with me. They came in there to work on their relationship with each other. So I point them straight at each other. And in my office, one of the things that I do, and this is part of my counseling philosophy, is I try not to just talk to people about how to communicate differently. Most couples who come to see me are trying to work on their communication. At least that's one of the things they're working on. And so I don't want to just talk about communication. I want them to communicate in my office. And we practice new ways of communicating. That's kind of part of my philosophy. So I have them looking at each other, and they're having this discussion. And suddenly she drops a bomb in the room. She looks over at me, breaks eye contact with him, looks over at me, and she's like, this is a waste of time. He has never shown me that he loved me in 25 years. Well, that's a pretty big statement to make, you know, if you think about it. Now, any guess what he said on the back end of that? He said, that's ridiculous. 
That's absolutely ridiculous. I could show you five ways that I've shown her that I love her the last week. And he's just, da, 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 da. he's off to the races. Now, I stopped him. And stopping him was a matter of benevolence because what he doesn't realize is that one of two things has happened. The moment that he said, that's ridiculous, she is either checked out and she's no longer you know, in the room. She's physically in the room, but maybe she's not in the room anymore. Or the other thing is she's getting more and more angry with every word that's coming out of his mouth. One of those two things is happening. So I stopped him and I said, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to think about what she just said over the last 20 minutes. She said that you guys are recent empty nesters living in a big house where there used to be a lot of noise, a lot of activity. Now that the kids have moved away, the house feels empty and lonely. And, and she was a stay-at-home mom. She, she doesn't know what to do with herself. She's like, what is my purpose? What is my role now? You keep telling her, you should just go get a job and that'll make you feel better. But she doesn't know what she's qualified for and that's scary to her. She's trying to figure out where do I fit in now? She's not, not, oh, she, she's not close to getting a job, but she doesn't even know where to start. She's very overwhelmed. And then on top of that, you're traveling four days a week. So most of the time she's just completely by herself. When you come home, you're not having sex. She's wondering what's happening on the road when you're gone four days a week. There's a lot of questions in her head about what her future looks like for the rest of her life. And she's pretty worried about it, feeling very alone. And I said, what I would like for you to do is I would like for you to look at her and start a sentence this way. Start a sentence with, if I felt the way that you just said that you feel and finish the sentence. I'm hoping he can do this. He looked at her and he said, if I felt the way that you just said that you feel, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. He said, I think I would literally be so depressed, I would just be collapsed on the inside and I wouldn't be able to keep going. Suddenly tears coming down her face and she says, he just heard me for the first time. That's not a brilliant counseling job. That's not anything that I did. That is the power of putting yourself in the other person's shoes and thinking about what would it be like if I was experiencing this, if I was going through what they're going through. Wendy and I over the years have called this going into the dressing room of the other person's experience. If, I, if I'm gonna go buy a new suit, I, I don't, I don't uh, have a lot of suits in my closet anymore, right? These are my church clothes. Um, I have a wedding and funeral suit. It serves both purposes. Um, <laughs> but if I'm going to get a suit, right, and I go to the store, I, I take several suits into the the dressing room and I try them on. Now, is it not true that when I try it on, I do not own it yet? It's not my suit, just trying it on. I wanna see how it feels, how how does it look, how does it drape? I'm, I'm experiencing that suit. I may keep it, I may not keep it, but at least I tried it on. That's what we're talking about. Do I have the ability to go into the dressing room of that person's experience? I don't have to own how they feel. I don't even have to agree with them, but the question is, can I at least try on what it feels like to be in their shoes? Can I, can I experience it and look at it and feel it? And what would it be like to be them? So the first question is, you know, how would I feel about what I'm doing right now? The second question is, if I was in their shoes, how would I feel about how I'm going about this? Because many of us know, and this is especially true in communication, you can have the right message, but the wrong delivery and mess the whole thing up. For instance, for me, I'm no longer allowed to go to parent-teacher meetings um, for my kids. It's not the school that said that. It's my, it was the intervention that my wife and daughters held. And, <laughs> and they said, dad, maybe you should just sit those out, you know? Because the thing is, I get very spirited and I get very into it, talking about things that I think need to be right, you know? And I, I get very, you know, very vocal and very animated. And last time I got called into the principal's office, which is, <laughs> that's not a lie, I really did. Um, Funny thing is, if you were to take me back in time to any of those scenarios, I would still sign my name to the issue. I would still sign my name to the, this is important to me. 
I would never sign my name to how I addressed it. I would never sign my name to the way that I expressed it because if you brought me in and you played the tape for me and you said, Jonathan, is this the best version of you? Is this the right way to handle this? I would have to say it's absolutely not. How many things, if God were to replay the tape for us, would we go, you know what? It was the right what, but it was definitely the wrong how. I used to have couples, for a very brief time, I had couples bring in segments of fights that they recorded. I would ask them both, on the tape, you have to both say, I know I'm being recorded, right? Um, And then you bring in part of that fight and we'll listen to it and we'll try to constructively work on doing things differently. I only did that for a very brief time. Do you know why? Because the shame that came from playing those segments of fights was so palpable, we couldn't even get to the work that needed to be done. Why? Because we hurt when we realize that we don't do things the right way, that our how is messed up. But you know what? We do at some point have to face this, that my what may be right, but my how may be wrong. Maybe it's my tone of voice, my facial expression, the way I'm going about it, the way I say things. Whatever it is, I've got to be willing to own up to that and say, if I'm going to plant seeds of the Spirit, I'm not only going to have to get the what right, I'm going to have to get the how right. And the third thing, oh, by the way, let me, let me quickly cover this. And that is, if you hear what I'm saying, and you say, you know what, Jonathan, I am, I'm gonna get my how right. I'm gonna change my how um, uh, because my spouse might not be a jerk anymore if I do that. Like, um, my spouse is still a moron, but I'm going to do my best to adjust my how. Can I just tell you that that will maybe last for two weeks, maybe. You know why? Because ultimately, how we treat others is a result of how we see them. So if, if the how is wrong, you're going to have to adjust how you see them, not only the semantics of how you communicate or how you do things. That's, that is the, the symptom. The root is how we see that person. I'm spoiled for choice when it comes to marriage role models. My parents are amazing marriage role models. I, I can tell you this, and you have no idea how huge this is for someone to be able to get up and tell you this about their pastor. My mom and dad were always, always at home what they were at church. I'm never, honestly, I have never heard my dad utter a curse word in, his, in my entire life. Never, ever, ever, ever have I heard him use foul language or my mother. I can count on one hand the number of big fights I witnessed between my parents. My parents were better at laughing at things and finding the humor in things and getting along and being a team. Like, that's what I witnessed. I, I, I can't begin to tell you how valuable that is. But if I did not have my parents as role models, Dan and Debbie Kubish would be a close second. Getting to learn from them and from their family has been huge. A year ago, we had Dan and Debbie at the marriage retreat and they were speaking and Dan told a story. I asked him if I could tell you that story right now and he said I could. When he was in high school, he played football and his football coach invited the team over to his house. They had a cookout and they were hanging out together as a team and the coach took them into a special room where he had in a display case a football that had been signed by the legendary coach, Vince Lombardi. And he said to the guys, he said, would you like to hold it? And he took the case off and he passed the Vince Lombardi football around to all the guys that were on the high school football team. And Dan said, I remember the moment when that got passed to me and I held this football and he said, you know, there's that moment where you kind of half just gasp your air and you go, wow, I can't believe I'm actually holding this. I can't believe I get to do this. And Dan said, my marriage, the quality of my marriage, speaking of him and Debbie, the quality of my marriage 
is going to be the best it can be if every moment that I see Debbie walk in the room, I have that same, wow, I get to be married to that lady. I get to spend my life with that lady. By the way, do you realize that's a choice? What the value that we put on things in our life, that's a choice. A person can be poor and still and tremendously value the things they have. And we certainly have seen plenty of people that have riches running out their ears who are still not content with what they have. Ultimately, it is not a question of how good that person is that you're married to or your kids are. The question is, do you choose to look at them and go, wow, I can't believe God has given me an opportunity to have this person in my life. If you do that, the how will come along for the ride. Third question, if I was in their shoes, how would I feel about when and where I'm doing this? I don't think I've ever heard this preached before, but did you know that the Bible teaches that, especially as it relates to communication, there are appropriate times and places for things and that you can have the right message, but if you pick the wrong time or the wrong place, it can still be the wrong thing. I'll give you an example of that. An example is if you're communicating something with your spouse or with your kids, you need to ask yourself who's there because sometimes an audience is appropriate and sometimes an audience is not appropriate. I've been to a t-ball game with my daughter when she was like five or six and watched a parent dress down their five-year-old because they didn't hit the t-ball correctly. Can we all just agree that t-ball is a sport where you are just getting it up. You know, you're just starting to get this figured out. And this parent is like, you know, here's all the things that you did wrong. Now, here's the thing. Maybe that, maybe that family has a very strong coaching dynamic and maybe that kid would benefit from the instruction. But I promise you that kid is not benefiting from that instruction in front of all of their peers. I've seen spouses joke about each other in front of other people. And it, but it was a joke that had a jab in it. And it was clearly a joke that was sort of a dig on a fault or an issue with their spouse. And it might be something that should get discussed at some point. I mean, the one that comes to mind is we had some friends and one was um, uh, uh, friends from Oklahoma. And one of them was talking about how the other one was always late. Maybe that's something they need to talk about. Maybe they need to talk about being on time, but not in front of everybody else. We don't. We should never put our spouse down in front of other people. We should never put our kids down in front of other people. And by the way, this even goes to how you talk to your spouse about raising your kids. That doesn't need an audience either. One of the worst things you can do as parents is to disagree about parenting in front of your kids. There's a reason for that. Our friend Kevin Lehman says that kids are a gift from God, but they're also manipulative little suckers. <laughs> and if you... Convince your kid by talking about things that you disagree on and parenting in front of them. You know what? You will convince your kids that you are divided and they will wedge into that divide because that's human nature. No, as parents, you need to be a team. And it's hard because when the Bible says two become one, that doesn't mean that somehow God creates out of us a two-headed monster. That is a three-legged race. God ties us together, which means it is harder than, you know, marriage is harder than single life for the same reason that a three-legged race is harder than taking a walk in the park. You now have another person strapped to you and you're gonna have to cooperate with them. But you need to, you need to work on issues in private and agree in public. Always have your spouses back in public. Have your kids back too. There's a win and where. And this, Jesus said, if another believer sins against you, go how, church? Privately. 
and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. The idea here scripturally is if you can handle it between the two of you, you will have restored harmony and you won't have any additional messes to clean up. But see, if we get in a, if I start getting critical of Winnie in front of other people, I've created a new mess. Now I need to go and clean up the mess of explaining to other people how I should not have had that conversation in front of them because that was unfair to Wendy. Jesus is saying, do it privately. You'll make so much smaller messes that way. Now, just a few minutes left. What makes this principle so effective? So I've been trying to sell you on how to do this. But I want to show you the biblical reason why it works, because it does work, and there's a, biblical, there, there's, there's a few biblical reasons why it works. The first one is this. It puts the focus where it needs to be, on me. If I follow the golden rule, I will take my focus off of whether everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do, which is human nature, and I will put the focus on whether I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Jesus said, it is human nature to want to go do eye surgery on someone else who has a little speck in their eye when I have a two by four plank stuck in my eye and I can think that I am, it is human nature to be so completely focused on someone else's behavior that I don't even realize that I can't see. So I'm not, I'm in no position to fix them. I need to first start with me. And by the way, I have people say, well, you know what? Then Jesus said, then you'll be able to see well to fix the other person. So you know what? I've pretty much done all that work and I'm ready to go now and, and fix everybody else. Can I tell you, most of us have a lifetime's worth of work just working on ourselves. If you think you're done, ask your spouse. <laughs> this is what the book of Galatians says. Pay careful attention to what, church? Your own work. It is human nature to want to walk around with an inspector's clipboard and check out everybody else and see if everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do. God says, nope, if you're going to keep out a clipboard, keep out a clipboard for yourself and just inspect what you're doing and ask yourself, is it the right thing? Am I doing what I would wish other people to do to me? Number two, it makes use of the you try it principle. And this is a principle that we use in performance psychology. Because coaches and bosses, sometimes, not always, but sometimes coaches and bosses get in the habit of critiquing someone's job when that job is something they neither know how to do, nor do they understand the limitations associated with doing that job. So for instance, th this is the story that, that always gets told when, when psychologists are teaching companies about the you try it principle. There's a, supposedly a, a, a guy flying in first class on an airplane, businessman used to getting his way, used to people just snapping to and doing whatever he wants. And there's this terrible turbulence on the plane and he can't read his magazines, really frustrating him. And so, you know, he gets up out of his seat. This was back in pre 9-11 days. Sometimes the cockpit door was open. He goes up to the cockpit and he starts to just, you know, berate the pilot. How come you guys can't fly around this kind of stuff? Do they not give you a weather briefing before we get up in the air like this? I mean, seriously, can you guys not find some smooth air? Because I'm I'm annoyed. I can't read my magazine. And the pilot, and again, this is urban legend. Who knows whether this really happened? But the pilot supposedly unfastened his seatbelt, turned around in his seat, motioned to the cockpit and said, why don't you try it? The power of that is realizing that often we do critique things that we don't even understand. I've talked to guys who regularly critique their wife in the work that she does in the home and with the kids that I promise you, if something, God forbid, if she were to get in a car accident and die tomorrow, he would not be able to do what she's doing. There is no way, because he has no clue all the, all the things that she's doing. He's got no clue the inventory of things that she's having to do every day. And yet it's easy to critique, is it not? Even though we don't even know what goes into it sometimes. 
part of doing to others what we want done to us is saying, I'm not going to crit- critique it until I know I can do it. If, I'm, if I can do it, then maybe I'm in a position to critique, but until then, I'm in no position to critique. Then the last thing, and this is the important one, God sees and God rewards. Because, you know, there'd be somebody who comes and hears this message and says, you know, Jonathan, um, I think I'm hearing from you that if I do to my spouse and my kids what I would want if I was in their place, they will straighten up and my kids will quit being a holy terror and my spouse will quit being an idiot and then my life will be better. Actually, here's the deal. If your spouse is currently an idiot, they may continue to be. If your kids are a holy terror, it's possible that they will continue to be that as well. Now, honestly, I do think that this law of sowing and reaping has temporal rewards as well. I think sometimes we begin to experience that inertia. Reagan says a rising tide lifts all ships. I think sometimes when we actually start to do the right thing, we may actually get some benefits from that. But just know, God has not promised you that your family will pay you back. God has promised that he will pay you back. And that's a better bargain. That's a better bargain. Years ago, we were at First Baptist Church of Edmond, my first church that I ever got to serve on staff. And my wife and I both sang in the praise team, and it was a week where Wendy was singing and I wasn't. So Wendy was up there practicing. This is after church, you know, midweek. She was up there practicing, and I was down in the auditorium keeping an eye on Cheyenne, who was probably three or four at the time. And there were several kids, you know, praise team members' kids that were sort of milling around and hanging out in the auditorium. Cheyenne had some toy that she was playing with. And, and for the life of me, I cannot remember what the toy was. I really tried, but I can't remember. And uh, this little boy came up to her. I knew, the, I knew the little boy and his family. He came up to her and said, Cheyenne, can I have your toy? Like, he wasn't asking to borrow it. He was asking for it. He wanted the toy. And Cheyenne said no, right? Little boy walks away. Perfectly reasonable answer. You don't have to give a little boy your toy. It's no big deal. And the little, little boy comes back. Cheyenne, can I have your toy? And she, she says, no. Little boy walks away. Little boy comes back for the third time. Cheyenne, I really want your toy. Can I have your toy? And Cheyenne reaches out and gives the little boy her toy. But she looked at me. <laughs> you know why? Because she realized I was the source of toys. You see where I'm going with this? You may go home today and it may be hard for you to start giving to your spouse or your kids because you may be like, well, I don't know if they're going to get with the program. I don't know if I'm going to do this and then they're not going to reciprocate. Maybe they won't. But the thing is, God sees. See, Cheyenne knew when she gave that little boy her toy, she knew that dad approved and dad would make it up to her. I would, I would make sure. And you know what? I, I was determined that I would make it up to her better. I'm going to give her something better than she gave away because I'm so proud of what my daughter's doing. Let me tell you, ma'am, God considers you his daughter. You are his daughter. When he sees you give to your husband, he's proud of you. When, when, when God sees you, sir, give to your wife, he's proud of you. When he sees the two of you giving to your kids, he's proud of you and he will make it up to you. He's serious about that. God says, look, Give, put me to the test on this. This is not just about financial giving, although I think, it's, I think it is in that vein that Jesus said, test me by giving to me and see if I don't give back to you more than you can take in. I think that principle goes beyond money. I think God is saying, try putting something in my hands. Try trusting me by giving away something and then let, just watch and see what I do with it. Just watch and see what I do. That's the sowing and reaping. I'm going to say a word of prayer 
Yeah, I'm gonna do that right now. I'm gonna say a word of prayer. Father, I pray for every person in this room that is touched by the idea of changing a behavior pattern, a thought pattern, how they do something to plant different seeds. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. I've never done this before, but I'm gonna do this right now. If you are in this room right now and there's an area in your life that you know you need to change the seeds that you're planting, you're like, Jonathan, I want you to pray for me that I'm gonna leave this room and I'm gonna start planting different seeds than what I've been planting because I want a better harvest. Nobody's looking around. I'm gonna ask you to slip your hand up in the air. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for every hand that's raised. And there are hands coming up all over the auditorium. Father, for every hand that's raised, thank you for the ability to look inside. By the way, my hand is raised as well. Thank you for our, just giving us the ability to inspect and realize, hey, we need to make a change. Now, Father, I'm gonna pray that each of us who has our hands raised, that you would give us a measure of faith to trust and know that you are going to reward us for making this change. Father, help us not to be discouraged by setbacks, but to be absolutely steady in our commitment to sow new seeds in a different way and to plan on a different harvest and to know that you are the God of the harvest and you will reward us. Father, thank you for the fact that you see and you know and you can do amazing things through our families and we're gonna trust you with that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.